Section 17 of Specimen Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Specimen Days by Walt Whitman. Section 17. Carlyle from American Points of View. Later Thoughts and Jottings. There is surely at present an inexplicable rapport, all the more piquant from its contradictoriness, between that deceased author and our United States of America, no matter whether it lasts or not. 13. As we Westerners assume definite shape and result in formations and fruitage unknown before, it is curious with what a new sense our eyes turn to representative outgrowths of crises and personages in the old world. Beyond question, since Carlyle's death and the publication of Proud's memoirs, not only the interest in his books, but every personal bit regarding the famous Scotchman, his dyspepsia, his buffetings, his parentage, his paragon of a wife, his career in Edinburgh, in the lonesome nest on Craig and Puttock Moor, and then, so many years in London, is probably wider and livelier to-day in this country than in his own land. Whether I succeed or not, I too, reaching across the Atlantic, and taking the man's dark fortune telling of humanity and politics, would offset it all such is the fancy that comes to me, by a far more profound horoscope casting those themes. G. F. Hegel's 14. First about a chance and never fulfilled vacuity of this pale cast of thought, this British hamlet from Shine Row, more puzzling than the Danish one, with his contrivances for setting the broken and spavened joints of the world's government especially its democratic dislocation. Carlyle's grim fate was cast to live and dwelling, and largely embody the parturition agony and qualms of the old order, amid crowded accumulations of ghastly morbidity, giving birth to the new. But conceive of him, or his parents before him, coming to America, recuperated by the cheering realities and activity of our people and country, growing up and delving face to face, resolutely among us here, especially at the West, inhaling and exhaling our limitless air and eligibilities, devoting his mind to the theories and developments of this republic amid its practical facts, as exemplified in Kansas. Missouri, Illinois, Tennessee, or Louisiana. I say facts, and face-to-face -face confrontings, so different from books, and all those quiddities and mere reports in the libraries, upon which the man, it was witty said of him at the age of thirty, that there was no one in Scotland who had gleaned so much and seen so little, almost wholly fed, and which even his sturdy and vital mind but reflected at best. 
Something of the sort narrowly escaped happening. In 1835, after more than a dozen years of trial and non-success, the author of Sata Rosatus, removing to London, very poor, a confirmed hypochondriac, Sata, universally scoffed at, no literary prospects ahead, deliberately settled on one last casting throw of the literary dice, resolved to compose and launch forth a book on the subject of the French Revolution, and if that won no higher guerdon or prize than hitherto, to sternly abandon the trade of author forever, and emigrate for good to America. But the venture turned out a lucky one, and there was no emigration. Carlyle's work in the sphere of literature, as he commenced and carried it out, is the same in one or two leading respects that Immanuel Kant's was in speculative philosophy. But the Scotchman had none of the stomach phlegm and never perturbed placidly at the Connersburg sage, and did not, like the latter, understand his own limits, and stop when he got to the end of them. He clears away jungle and poison vines and underbrush, at any rate hacks valiantly at them, smitting high and thigh. Kant did like in his fear, and it was all his professed to do. His labours have left the ground fully prepared ever since, and greatest service was probably never performed by mortal man. But the pang and hiatus of Carlyle seemed to me to consist in the evidence everywhere that amid a whirl of fog and fury and cross-purposes, he firmly believed he had a clue to the medication of the world's ills, and that his bounden mission was to exploit it. 15. There were two anchors, or sheet anchors, for steadying, as a last resort, the Carlean ship, one will be specified presently. The other, perhaps the main, was only to be found in some marked form of personal force, an extreme degree of competent urge and will, a man or men born to command. Probably there ran through every vein and current of a Scotchman's blood something that warmed up to this kind of trait and character above aught else in the world, and which makes him, in my opinion, the chief celebrator and promulger of it in literature, more than Plutarch, more than Shakespeare. The great masses of humanity stand for nothing, at least nothing but nebulous raw material, only the big planets and shining suns for him two ideas almost invariably languid or cold, a number one forceful personality was sure to rouse his eulogistic passion and savage joy. In such case, even the standard of duty hereinafter raised was to be instantly lowered and veiled. All that is comprehended under the terms republicanism and democracy were distasteful to him from the first, and as he grew older they became hateful and contemptible. For an undoubtedly candid and penetrating faculty, such as his, 
the bearings he persistently ignored were marvellous. For instance, the promised nay certainty of the democratic principle to each and every state of the current world, not so much of helping it to perfect legislators and executives, but as the only effectual method for surely, however slowly, training people on a large scale toward voluntarily ruling and managing themselves, the ultimate aim of political and all other development, to gradually reduce the fact of governing to its minimum and to subject all its staffs and their doings to the telescopes and microscopes of committees and parties, and greatest of all, to afford not stagnation and obedient content, which went well enough with the feudalism and ecclesiasticism of the antique and medieval world, but a vast and sane and recurrent ebb and tide action for those floods of the great deep that have henceforth palpably burst forever their old bounds, seem never to have entered Carlyle's thought. It was splendid how he refused any compromise to the last. He was curiously antique, in that harsh, picturesque, most potent voice and figure one seems to be carried back from the present of the British islands more than two thousand years to the range between Jerusalem and Tarsus. His fullest best biographer just says of him, he was a teacher and a prophet in the Jewish sense of the word. The prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah have become a part of the permanent spiritual inheritance of mankind, because events proved that they had interpreted correctly the sign of their own times, and their prophecies were fulfilled. Carlyle, like them, believed that he had a special message to deliver to the present age. Whether he was correct in that belief, and whether his message was a true message, remains to be seen. He has told us that our most cherished ideas of political liberty, with their kindred collieries, are mere illusions, and that the progress which has seemed to go along with them is a progress towards anarchy and social dissolution. If he was wrong, he has misused his powers. The principles of his teachings are false. He has offered himself as a guide upon a road of which he had no knowledge, and his own desire for himself would be the speediest oblivion both of his person and his works. If, on the other hand, he has been right, if, like his great predecessors, he has read truly the tendencies of this modern age of ours, and his teaching is authenticated by facts, then Carlyle, too, will take his place among the inspired seers. To which I add an amendment that under no circumstances and no matter how completely time and events disprove his lurid vaticinations, should the English-speaking world forget this man, nor fail to hold in honour 
his unsurpassed conscience, his unique method, and his honest fame. Never were convictions more earnest and genuine. Never was there less of a flunky or temporizer. Never had a political progressivism a foe it could more heartily respect. The second main point of Carlyle's utterance was the idea of duty being done. It is simply a new condescile, if it be particularly new, which is by no means certain. On the time-honoured bequest of dynatism, the mould-eaten rules of legitimacy and kings, he seems to have been impatient sometimes to madness when reminded by persons who thought at least as deeply as himself that this formula, though precious, is rather a vague one, and that there are many other considerations to a philosophical estimate of each and every department either. Altogether, I don't know anything more amazing than these persistent strides and throbbings so far through our nineteenth century of perhaps its biggest, sharpest, and most erudite brain, in defiance and discontent with everything, contemptuously ignoring, either from constitutional inaptitude, ignorance itself, or more likely because he demanded a definite cure all here and now, the only solace and solvent to be had. There is, apart from mere intellect in the make-up of every superior human identity, in its moral completeness, considered as ensemble, not for that moral alone, but for the whole being, including physique, a wondrous something that realises without argument frequently without what is called education, though I think it the goal and apex of all education deserving the name, an intuition of the absolute balance, in time and space, of the whole of this multifarious, mad chaos of fraud, frivolity, hoggishness, this revel of fools, an incredible make-believe and general unsettledness, we call the world, a sole sight of that divine clue and unseen thread which holds the whole conjuries of things, all history and time, and all events, however trivial, however momentous, like a leashed dog in the hand of the hunter. Such sole sight and root centre for the mind, mere optimism explains only the surface or fringe of it. Carlyle was mostly, perhaps entirely without. He seems instead to have been haunted in the play of his mental action by a spectre, never entirely laid from first to last. Greek scholars, I believe, find the same mocking and fantastic apparition attending Aristophanes, his comedies, the spectre of world destruction. How largest triumph or failure in human life, in war or peace, may depend on some little hidden centrality, hardly more than a drop of blood, 
a pulse beat, or a breath of air. It is certain that all these weighty matters, democracy in America, Carlylism, and the temperament for deepest political or literary exploration, turn on a simple point in speculative philosophy. The most profound theme that can occupy the mind of man, the problem on whose solution science, art, the basis and pursuits of nations, and everything else, including intelligent human happiness, here today, 1882, New York, Texas, California, the same as all times, all lands, subtly and finally resting, depends for competent outset and argument, is doubtless involved in the query. What is the fusing explanation and tie? What the relation between the radical democratic, me, the human identity of understanding, emotion, spirit, etc., on the one side, of and with the conservative, not me, the whole of the material objective, universe and laws, with what is behind them in time and space, on the other side. Immanuel Kant, though he explained, or partially explained, as may be said, the laws of the human understanding, left this question an open one. Scaling, answer, or suggestion of answer, is, and very valuable and important, as far as it goes, that the same general and particular intelligence, passion, even the standards of right and wrong, which exists in a conscious and formulated state in man, exist in an unconscious state, or perceptible analogies, throughout the entire universe of external nature, in all its objects large or small, and all its movements and processes, thus making the impalpable human mind and concrete nature, notwithstanding their duality and separation, convertible and in centrality and essence one. But G. F. Hegel's fuller statement of the matter probably remains the last best word that has been said upon it up to date. Substantially adopting the scheme just epitomized, he so carries it out and fortifies it and merges everything in it, with certain serious gaps now for the first time filled, that it becomes a coherent metaphysical system and substantial answer, as far as there can be any answer, to the foregoing question, a system which, while I distinctly admit that the brain of the future may add to, revise, and even entirely reconstruct, at any rate, beams forth to-day, in its entirety, illuminating the thought of the universe, and satisfying the mystery thereof to the human mind, with a more consoling scientific assurance than any yet. According to Hegel, the whole earth, an old nucleus thought, as in the Vedas, and no doubt before, he never hitherto brought so absolutely to the front, 
fully surcharged with modern scientism and facts, and made the sole entrance to each and all, with its infinite variety, the past, the surroundings of to-day, or what may happen in the future, the contrarieties of material with spiritual, and of natural with artificial, are all to the eye of the ensemblist. But necessary sides and unfoldings, different steps or links, in the endless process of creative thought, which amid numberless apparent failures and contradictions, is held together by central and never-broken unity, not contradictions or failures at all, but radiations of one consistent and eternal purpose. The whole mass of everything steadily, unerringly tending and flowing toward the permanent, utile and morale, as rivers to oceans, as life is the whole law and incessant effort of the visible universe, and death only the other or invisible side of the same, so the utile, so truth, so health are continuous, immutable laws of the moral universe, and vice and disease, with all their perturbations, are but transient, even if ever so prevalent expressions. To politics throughout, Hegel applies the like Catholic standard and faith. Not any one party, or any one form of government, is absolutely and exclusively true. Truth consists in the just relations of objects to each other, a majority or democracy may rule as outrageously and do us great harm as an oligarchy or disposition, though far less likely to do so. But the great evil is either a violation of the relations just referred to, or of the moral law, the specious, the unjust, the cruel, and what is called the unnatural, though not only permitted but in a certain sense, like shade to light, inevitable in the divine scheme, are by the whole constitution of that scheme, partial, inconsistent, temporary, and though having ever so great an ostensible majority, are certainly destined to failures, after causing great suffering. Theology Hegel translates into science, 16. All apparent contradictions in the statement of the deific nature by different ages, nations, churches, points of view, are but fractional and imperfect expressions of one essential unity, from which they all proceed, crude endeavours or distorted parts, to be regarded both as distinct and united. In short, to put it in our own form, or summing up, that thinker or analyzer or overlooker, who by an inscrutable combination of trained wisdom and natural intuition, most fully accepts in perfect faith the moral unity and sanity of the creative scheme, in history, science, and all life and time, present and future, is both the truest cosmical devotee 
or religioso, and the profoundest philosopher, while he who, by the spell of himself and his circumstance, sees darkness and despair in the sum of the workings of God's providence, and who, in that, denies or prevaricates, is no matter how much piety plays on his lips, the most radical sinner and infidel. I am the more assured in recounting Hegel a little freely here. 17. Not only for offsetting the Carlyan letter and the spirit cutting it out all and several from the very roots and below the roots, but to counterpoise since the late death and deserved apothesis of Darwin, the tenets of the evolutionists, unspeakably precious as those are to biology, and henceforth indispensable to a right aim and estimate in study. They neither compromise or explain anything, and the last word or whisper still remains to be breathed. After the utmost of these claims, floating high and forever above them all, and above technical metaphysics. While the contributions which German Kant and Fitch and Schelling and Hegel have bequeathed to humanity, and which English Darwin has also in his field, are indispensable to the erudition of America's future, I should say that in all of them, and the best of them, when compared with the lightning flashes and fights of the old prophets and exults, the spiritual poets and poetry of all lands, as in the Hebrew Bible, there seems to be, nay, certainly is, something lacking, something cold, a failure to satisfy the deepest emotions of the soul, a want of living glow, fondness, warmth, which the old exults, and poets supply, and which the keenest modern philosophers so far do not. Upon the whole, and for our purposes, this man's name certainly belongs on the list with the just specified, first-class moral physicians of our current era, and with Emerson and two or three others, though his prescription is drastic, and perhaps destructive while these is assimilating normal and tonic. Feudal at the core, and mental offspring and radiation of feudalism, as are his books, they afford ever valuable lessons and affinities to democratic America. Nations or individuals, we surely learn deepest from unlikeness, from a sincere opponent, from the light thrown even scornfully on dangerous spots and liabilities. Michael Angelo invoked heaven's special protection against his friends and affectionate flatterers, palpable foes he could manage for himself. In many particulars Carlyle was indeed, as Froude terms him, one of those far-off Hebraic utterers a new mica of Habakkuk. His words at time bubble forth with abysmic inspiration. Always precious, such men, as precious now at any time. His rude, rasping, taunting, contradictory tones, 
what ones are more wanted amid the supple, polished money, worshipping, Jesus and Judas equalizing, suffrage sovereignty echoes of current America. He has lit up our nineteenth century with the light of a powerful, penetrating, and perfectly honest intellect of the first class, turned on British and European politics, social life, literature, and represent personages, thoroughly dissatisfied with all, and mercilessly exposing the illness of all. But while he announces the malady, and scolds and raves about it, he himself, born and bred in the same atmosphere, is a marked illustration of it. Notes 13. It will be difficult for the future, judging by his books, personal dissympathies, etc., to account for the deep hold this author has taken on the present age, and the way he has coloured its methods and thought. I am certainly at a loss to account for it all as affecting myself, but there could be no view, or even partial picture, of the middle and latter part of our nineteenth century that did not markedly include Thomas Carlyle. In his case, as so many others, literary productions, works of art, personal identities, events, there has been an impalpable something more effective than the palpable. Then I find no better text. It is always important to have a definite, special, even oppositional, living man to start from for sending out certain speculations and comparisons for home use. Let us see what they amount to, those reactionary doctrines, fears, scornful analyses of democracy, even from the most erudite and sincere mind of Europe. 14. Not the least mentionable part of the case, a streak it may be, of that humour with which history and fate love to contrast their gravity, is that, although neither of my great authorities during their lives considered the United States worthy of serious mention, all the principal works of both might not inappropriately be this day collected and bound up under the conspicuous title speculations for the use of North America, and democracy there with the relations of the same to metaphysics, including lessons and warnings, encouragements to, and of the vastest, from the old world to the new. 15. I hope I shall not myself fall into the error I charge upon him or prescribing of specific for indispensable evils. My utmost pretension is probably but to offset that old claim of the exclusively curative power of first-class individual men, as leaders and rulers by the claims and general movement and result of ideas. Something of the latter kind seems to me the distinctive theory of America, of democracy and of the modern, or rather, I should say, it is democracy and is the modern. 
16. I am much indebted to J. Gostick's abstract. 17. I have deliberately repeated it all, not only in offset to Carlyle's ever-lurking pessimism and world decadence, but as presenting the most thoroughly American points of view I know. In my opinion, the above formulas of Heckel are an essential and crowning justification of new world democracy in the creative realms of time and space. There is that about them which only the vastness, the multiplicity and the vitality of America would seem able to comprehend, to give scope and illustration to, or to be fit for or even originate. It is strange to me that they were born in Germany, or in the old world at all, while a Carlyle, I should say, is quite the legitimate European product to be expected. A couple of old friends, a Coleridge bit. Later April have run down in my country haunt for a couple of days, and am spending them by the pond. I had already discovered my kingfisher here, but only one, the mate not here yet. This fine bright morning, down by the creek, he has come out for a spree, circling, flirting, chirping at a round rate. While I am writing these lines, he is disporting himself in scoots and rings over the wider parts of the pond into whose surface he dashes, once or twice, making a loud souse, the spray flying in the sun. Beautiful! I see his white and dark grey plumage and peculiar shape plainly, as he has deigned to come very near me. The noble, graceful bird! Now he is sitting on the limb of an old tree, high up, bending over the water, seems to be looking at me while I memorandise. I almost fancy he knows me. Three days later, my second kingfisher is here with his, or her, mate. I saw the two together flying and whirling around. I had heard in the distance what I thought was the clear rasping staccato of the birds several times already but I couldn't be sure the notes came from both until I saw them together. Today, at noon, they appeared, but apparently either on business or for a little limited exercise only. No wild frolic now, full of free fun and motion, up and down for an hour. Doubtless, now they have cares, duties, incubation, responsibilities. The frolics are deferred till summer close. I don't know as I can finish today's memorandum better than with Coleridge's lines, curiously appropriate in more ways than one. All nature seems at work, slugs leave their lair, the bees are stirring, birds are on the wing, and winter slumbering in the open air, wears on his smiling face a dream of spring. And I, the while, the sole unbusy thing, nor honey make 
nor pair, nor build, nor sing. A Week's Visit to Boston May 1, 81 Seems as if all the ways and means of American travel today had been settled, not only with reference to speed and directness, but for the comfort of women, children, invalids, and old fellows like me. I went on by a through train that runs daily from Washington to the Yankee metropolis. You get in a sleeping car soon after dark in Philadelphia, and after ruminating an hour or two, have your bed made up if you like, draw the curtains, and go to sleep in it. Fly on through Jersey to New York. Here in your half slumbers, a dull jolting and bumping sound or two are unconsciously totted from Jersey City by a midnight steamer around the battery and under the big bridge to the track of the New Haven Road. Resume your flight eastward, and early the next morning you wake up in Boston. All of which was my experience. I wanted to go to the Revere House, a tall, unknown gentleman, a fellow passenger on his way to Newport, he told me. I had just chatted a few moments before with him, assisted me out through the depot crowd, procured a hack, put me in with my travelling bag, saying smilingly and quietly, Now I want you to let this be my ride, paid the driver, and before I could remonstrate, bowed himself off. The occasion was my jaunt. I suppose I had better say here was for a public reading of the death of Abraham Lincoln, essay on the sixteenth anniversary of that tragedy, which reading duly came off, night of April 15. Then I lingered a week in Boston, felt pretty well. The mood, propitious, went around everywhere, and saw all that was to be seen, especially human beings. Boston's immense material growth, commerce, finance, commission stores, the plethora of goods, the crowded streets and sidewalks, made, of course, the first surprising show. In my trip out west last year, I thought the wand of future prosperity, future empire, must soon surely be wielded by St. Louis, Chicago, beautiful Denver, perhaps San Francisco, but I see the said wand stretched out just as decidedly in Boston, with just as much certainty of staying, evidences of copious capital, indeed no centre of the new world ahead of it. Half the big railroads in the West are built with Yankees' money, and they take the dividends. Old Boston, with its zigzag streets and multitudinous angles, crush up a sheet of letter paper in your hand, throw it down, stamp it flat, and that is a map of old Boston. New Boston, with its miles upon miles of large and costly houses, Beacon Street, Commonwealth Avenue, and a hundred others. But the best new departures and expansions of Boston 
and of all the cities of New England, are in another direction. THE BOSTON OF TODAY In the letters we get from Dr. Schleiman, interesting but fishy, about his excavations there in the far-off Homeric area, I notice cities, ruins, etc., as he digs them out of their graves, are certain to be in layers, that is to say, upon the foundation of an old concern. Very far down, indeed, is always another city or set of ruins, and upon that another superadded, and sometimes upon that still another, each representing either a long or rapid stage of growth and development, different from its predecessor, but unerringly growing out of and resting on it. In the moral, emotional, heroic, and human growths, the main of a race, in my opinion, something of this kind has certainly taken place in Boston. The New England metropolis of today may be described as sunny. There is something else that makes warmth, mastering even winds and meteorologies, though those are not to be sneezed at. Joyous, receptive, full of ardor, sparkle a certain element of yearning, magnificently tolerant, yet not to be fooled, fond of good eating and drinking costly in costume as its purse can buy, and all through its best average of houses, streets, people, that subtle something, generally thought to be climate, but it is not. It is something indefinable in the race, the turn of its development, which effuses behind the whirl of animation, study, business, a happy and joyous public spirit, as distinguished from a sluggish and saturnine one. Makes me think of the glints we get, as in Simon's books, of the jolly old Greek cities. Indeed, there is a good deal of Hellenic in being, and the people are getting handsomer, too, padded out, and free motions, and with colour in their faces. I never saw, although this is not Greek, so many fine-looking grey-haired women. At my lecture I caught myself pausing more than once to look at them, plentiful everywhere through the audience, healthy and wifely and motherly, and wonderfully charming and beautiful. I think such as no time or land but ours could show. My Tribute to Four Poets April 16 A short but pleasant visit to Longfellow. I am not one of the calling kind, but as the author of Evangeline kindly took the trouble to come and see me three years ago in Camden, where I was ill, I felt not only the impulse of my own pleasure on that occasion, but a duty. He was the only particular eminence I called on in Boston, and I shall not soon forget his lit-up face and glowing warmth and courtesy in the modes of what is called the old school. And now just here I feel the impulse to impolate 
something about the mighty four who stamped this first American century with its birthmarks of poetic literature. In a late magazine, one of my reviewers, who ought to know better, speaks of my attitude of contempt and scorn and intolerance toward the leading poets, of my deriding them and preaching their uselessness. If anybody cares to know what I think, and have long thought and avowed about them, I am entirely willing to profound. I can't imagine any better luck befalling these dates for a poetical beginning and initiation than has come from Emerson, Longfellow, Bryant, and Whittier. Emerson, to me, stands unmistakably at the head, but for the others I am at a loss where to give any precedence. Each illustrious, each rounded, each distinctive. Emerson for his sweet, vital-tasting melody, rhymed philosophy and poems as amber-clear as the honey of the wild bee he loves to sing. Longfellow for rich colour, graceful forms and incidents, all that makes life beautiful and love refined, competing with the singers of Europe on their own ground, and, with one exception, better and finer work than that of any of them. Bryant, pulsing the first interior, first throbs of a mighty world, bard of the river and the wood, ever conveying a taste of open air, with sense as from hayfields, grapes, birch borders, always lurkingly fond of Thranodes, beginning and ending his long career with chance of death, with here and there through all poems or passages of poems, touching the highest universal truths, enthusiasms, duties, morals as grim and internal, if not as stormy and fateful as anything in Aeschylus, while in Whittier, with his special themes, his outcropping love of heroism and war, for all his Quakerdom, his verses at times like the measured step of Cromwell's old veterans. In Whittier lives the zeal, the moral energy that founded New England, the splendid rectitude and ardour of Luther, Milton, George Fox. I must not, dare not, say the willfulness and narrowness, though doubtless the world needs now, and always will need, almost above all, just such narrowness and willfulness. Millet's Pictures, Last Items April 18. Went out three or four miles to the house of Quincy Shaw to see a collection of J.F. Millet's pictures. Two rapt hours. Never before have I been so penetrated by this kind of expression. I stood long and long before the sour. I believe what the picture men designate the first sour, as the artist executed a second copy, and a third, and something improved in each. But I doubt it. There is something in this that could hardly be caught again, a sublime murkiness and original pent fury. 
Besides this masterpiece, there were many others. I shall never forget the simple evening scene, watering the cow. All inimitable, all perfect as pictures, works of mere art. And then it seemed to me, with the last impalpable ethic purpose from the artist, most likely unconscious to himself, which I am always looking for. To me, all of them told the full story of what went before and necessitated the great French Revolution. The long precedent crushing of the masses of a heroic people into the earth, in abject poverty, hunger, humanity attempted to be put back for generations. Yet nature's force, titanic here, the stronger and hardier for that repression, waiting terribly to break forth, revengeful, the pressures on the dikes, and the bursting at last, the storming of the Bastille, the execution of the king and queen, the tempest of massacres and blood, yet who can wonder? Could we wish humanity different? Could we wish the people made of wood or stone? Or that there be no justice in destiny or time? The true France, base of all the rest, is certainly in these pictures. I comprehend field people reposing, the diggers and the angelus in this opinion. Some folks always think of the French as a small race, five or five and a half feet high, and ever frivolous and smirking. Nothing of the sort. The bulk of the personnel of France before the revolution was large-sized, serious, industrious as now, and simple. The revolution and Napoleon's wars dwarfed the standard of human size, but it will come up again. If for nothing else, I should dwell on my brief Boston visit for opening to me the new world of Millet's pictures. Will America ever have such an artist out of her own gestation, body, soul? Sunday, April 17. An hour and a half late this afternoon, in silence and half-light, in the great nave of Memorial Hall, Cambridge. The walls thickly covered with mural tablets, bearing the names of students and graduates of the university who fell in the secession war. April 23. It was well I got away in fair order, for if I had stayed another week, I should have been killed with kindness and with eating and drinking. End of Section 17